Well, usually Caleb is in the back hiding and doing really good work, and uh, today he's on the stage. And the reason is, is because we've had some technical difficulties. We had a Mac computer die. Can you believe that? I mean, I, that doesn't happen. To, anyway, it's, it's been a rough morning, but uh, we really appreciate uh, Caleb and all the work that he does behind the scenes and even brings Team Tory, his parents here, to help get things in order. And so, um, but uh, we're going to preach the gospel this morning, one way or the other. So we have been working our way through the Apostles' Creed, and if you don't know what that is, it's okay. Uh, it's the oldest creed, uh, the, most, the shortest, most concise of the ancient creeds of the ancient church, and it gives us the basics of uh, the, the Christian uh, belief system. And one of the things we said up front was that it has three sections uh, very clearly, and the first section is about believing in God the Father, the next is about believing God the Son, and the next is about believing God the Spirit. And last week, we just got our toe in the water for God the Spirit, and you heard an excellent sermon from Cooper uh, as he uh, preached on that uh, topic. And uh, before that, you heard an excellent sermon from Christian, who talked about the ascension of Jesus. And so those things are linked, where uh, the resurrected Christ ascends to the right hand of the Father, and then the Spirit is sent. And a big reason why the Spirit is sent is to birth the church. There's no church until the Holy Spirit shows up in this very unique sort of post-resurrection, post-ascension way. And in fact, Jesus even tells the disciples, even though they know everything they need to know, to wait on the Holy Spirit. And we heard, we heard this in, in Christian's uh, sermon from Acts chapter 1, where it says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he, had, he, he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so they're, they're warned, like, don't do anything. <laughs> Just be still. Wait for the Spirit to come, the Holy Spirit to come. And, and so it makes sense that this is the order in the creed, right? We get past the, uh, the, the part about Christ, and then we get to the Holy Spirit, and then immediately after saying we, that we believe in the Holy Spirit is that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. Both of those phrases are descriptors of the church. And each of those uh, Words and phrases has a lot of significant meaning. Uh, it's telling us the church is holy, meaning it's set apart for God. doesn't mean everyone's perfect and everyone's got it down, but it means that we're set apart for God and God alone. That the church is Catholic, that doesn't mean that it's Roman Catholic. In fact, we've been saying, using the word just holy Christian church so people aren't confused. But Catholic is just another word for universal, right? We believe in the universal church, that what's happening here in this room is just one small part of a worldwide church uh, that is meeting all, all around uh, the globe. That the church is a communion or a union of saints, saints not being like special, you know, rock star Christians that are venerated, but saints as in every Christian, right? It literally means holy ones, right? Those that have been set apart 
for God as individuals are unified by the Holy Spirit into a community, right? The communion of saints. And you might say, well, where do they get that, right? Where in the Bible is all of that kind of, of, of thinking of that there's this spiritually unified group of people known as the church? And I think one of the uh, most important passages is the one we're going to look at today, 1 Peter 2. And so hope, if you haven't found it yet in one of those Bibles or on your phone, uh, try to find it. 1 Peter 2, it's in the New Testament. When somebody knows the page number, maybe call it out. 953, okay. Um, and so the, the way I do this is I don't put the text up here that I'm preaching from. The texts that I put up here are a supporting text, so, so you don't have to jump around the Bible. But I do want you to know where things are in the Bible and to, to, to figure that out and to see where I'm getting what I'm saying, right? You want, me, you want to know for sure that I'm, I'm saying something that's coming from the Bible. So what we're going to see here uh, is what is meant by what we might say is a spiritual church. What is the spiritual church? And then who is part of the spiritual church? And then what should we expect as members of the spiritual church, right? So spiritual church, how do you become a part of that spiritual church and what should we expect? So the first couple of verses here, verses 4 and 5 of 1 Peter 2, speak of this concept of a spiritual church. So Again, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter's using the imagery of the Old Testament temple. And he's pointing to three different things that were like the main things about the temple. The building itself, uh, the priests that carried out all the activities in the temple, and the most important activity that the priests carried out, which was the sacrifice. He alludes to all three of those in this uh, couple of verses here. So first, the building. Uh, he starts talking about the foundation stone of the building, right, of of this spiritual house, this spiritual temple. And he says that this foundation stone is a living stone. And then he calls the living stone a hymn. So evidently, this is a person that is the foundation stone of uh, the, the, the temple that is the spiritual uh, church. He mentions that this foundation stone is getting mixed responses that this foundation stone is being rejected by human beings, but it's chosen and precious by God the Father. If, 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 you're, if you're tracking with me, you know, oh, this foundation stone is Jesus. This is who he's speaking of. Um, and it's so interesting that Peter would use this imagery because this was part of a conversation, a very significant conversation that Peter had with Jesus Back in Matthew chapter 16, the setup of that conversation is Jesus asked his disciples, it's kind of a pop quiz, who do you think I am? And this is what Peter says in Matthew 16, verse 16. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. This is Peter's 
name before he, Jesus changed it to Peter. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so Peter's letting us know in his letter that rock, that stone that Jesus was talking about, is Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done on his death uh, on the cross for sins. And this is the foundation of the spiritual temple, the spiritual church. Um, He also speaks of living stones other than Jesus in that passage. That's the members of the church. That's the hearers of this original letter. That's all of us who are genuine Christians. We are these living stones that are being gathered and collected and built up on the foundation of the main stone, Jesus. Um, Notice that he says that this is being built up into a spiritual house. Um, The Old Testament temple was the place where God's presence was made most known, okay? So God's always everywhere, all the time. He can make himself known anywhere, any place. But he chose, as a way of revealing himself to his people, to uniquely dwell inside the brick and mortar of the temple in Jerusalem in the Old Testament. And this was his way of introducing himself to finite human beings. I mean, he's an infinite God. How does an infinite God communicate to finite human beings? Well, he did it through uh, this temple and dwelling in this temple. Now, this was never the long-term plan. Never the long-term plan. Um, Jesus has this very interesting conversation with this Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 where they start going back and forth about some religious questions and the Samaritans, uh, being half Jewish, were not allowed to go to Jerusalem and and go to the temple there. So they just built another temple. And so they're having this conversation about which temple is the right temple? Which temple do we go to to actually encounter the the, the genuine presence of God? And this is Jesus' answer to her question in John uh, 4.21. It says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So he lets her know this plan, the long-term plan, is that God's people would worship everywhere. (laughs) And they would worship in spirit and truth. What does he mean by that? Well, in truth, as in they would be grounded in the truth, especially gospel truth of who Jesus is and what He's done. And, and that as they center themselves on that truth, they would be experiencing spiritual life through the Holy Spirit. And they could do that in a living room. They could do that under a shade tree. They could do that inside a brick-and-mortar structure that we call church, which is kind of weird because we're, we're the church, right? But Jesus is letting her know this is the long-term plan, that His his children would, would, would gather and dwell 
founded on the foundation of, of Christ and experienced the work of the Spirit in that community. Now, he, he speaks of the community uh, as, as a priesthood, right? We, talk, we said that the, there's the brick-and-mortar temple, then there's the, the priests that carry on the activities, right? In verse 5, uh, he says, you yourselves like living stones, so that's about the building. You're being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So then he shifts and starts talking about the priesthood. Now, Old Testament priests were a special class of people, uh, and they got that, that special designation from just being in the right family. Right? They, they were in the tribe of Levi, but not only that, they were in the line of Aaron, and that made them qualified to be priests, and priests had special access to God. And so, like, in the temple situation, you had these different layers of access to God. And here's a little very simplistic... Um, there it is. So, you, if, you, if you're walking in from the right side in the, in the vestibule there, you, uh, if, if you are uh, Jewish, you can go in there, right? And so, you're kind of two, two layers away from the most concentrated presence of God. But then the priest could go into the holy place. This is where the sacrifices were made. And so they could go in there and make the sacrifices for the regular people and for themselves. Then the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies once a year, which is the, the, the most sort of concentrated presence of God. And what Peter is saying here is post-Jesus, as, as the people of God, as the New Testament church, everybody's a priest. Sometimes this is called the priesthood of the believer, and, and part of what he's saying is you have access to God, right? You don't have to go through a mediator. Christ has done all of your mediation for you. And if you put your faith in, your reliance upon, your trust in Christ as the cornerstone, as the foundation, you now have access to the presence of God. You're a priest. You're a priesthood. And he says you're offering spiritual sacrifices. Now, that lets us know that the, the killing of animals as sacrifices for sin in the Old Testament, we're done with that. That's over. Why is that over? Well, because Christ has died as the once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. And all those lesser sacrifices were pointing forward to the once-for-all sacrifice. That sacrifice has been made by Jesus on the cross. And so what are these spiritual sacrifices? Well, one of the places that I think is, is a helpful descriptor of this is in Hebrews, which is another one of those places where the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifice is talked about as illustrations of uh, the, the work of the Spirit and of the gospel in the church. And so Hebrews 13, it says, uh, verse 15, Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So he's just sort of throwing out some examples of what it might look like to offer spiritual sacrifices up to God. And so I, I think in general he's saying the surrender of your entire life unto God is a spiritual sacrifice. When we're singing there's, there's something just really unique that, that is us offering ourselves up, our voices up 
You guys singing, Oh Holy Night. Man, props to you for going after it, for Oh Holy Night, right? You're offering up your whole self. But not just that, right? Doing good, uh, sharing what you have, really the entire Christian life, is an offering up of a spiritual sacrifice. Not a sacrifice for sin, but a sacrifice of gratitude, of thanksgiving, of, of praise in response to the once-for-all sacrifice that Christ has made on the cross, who is our, our foundation. So we, we get a sense from this idea of the, the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifice, what a spiritual church looks like. Now, how do you get in? How do you get in? This thing, this, this sounds pretty amazing. How do you get in? And, and he uh, talks about that, right? In verse 6 of 1 Peter 2, he says, and he starts quoting a bunch of Old Testament Scripture. He says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So simply put, those who believe get in. Those who do not believe do not get in. Now, he uses some scripture from Isaiah 28 and Psalm 118, and he kind of mushes them uh, together, and he creates this little narrative, and it's a narrative of, of a temple construction project. And so they've got the plans all you know, written out, and they're ready to get started. They've cut the ribbon, and they're like, okay, first things first, we've got to get a foundation stone. We've got to start with the, with the right foundation. They bring the foundation stone out. All the, the architects and the engineers and all the temple builders, they walk out and they look at the foundation stone, and they're like, nope. Not that stone. We reject that stone. We're, we're not going to trust in and rely upon and put our faith in and our belief in that stone. We're not doing that. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus being offered up as the, the one and only foundation stone for the church. And the rejection by some of that foundation stone. Now, why would people want to reject Jesus as the foundation stone? There's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of reasons. Um, There can be a shame associated with aligning one's life with Jesus. Uh, I remember a college student coming in to our church in Massachusetts, and they're in a pandemic, and you know, he's sitting in his dorm room by himself and thinking about the big questions of life, and he'd never been to a church before, and uh, he's a philosophy major, and he's just he's thinking about deep stuff, and he's like, I, I got, I'm going to go to a church, and he reaches out to a friend, and the, he says, what church should I go to? And they, the friend says, go to Mercy House, and this is the church that we uh, were, we're serving in there in uh, Massachusetts, and so he just shows up to a pandemic service, which, you know, you stand out because there's like 30 of us, and we're all masked up, and then we're like, hey, new person, <laughs> and so I chat with him and say, well, why don't we get together and talk, and so we start meeting from coffee. We study the entire book of John cover to cover 
Uh, we then start moving to other Gospels, and I mean, he is just eating it up. And he's like, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. I'm like, this is awesome. And he's in, he's in our house. We're, we're having dinners together. We're, we're, we're really building a friendship uh, around Christ with this, with this college student. And then one afternoon, I'm trying to text him. He's not texting me back. I'm like, what happened? You know, is he, is he hurt? Is he sick? Is something happened? And finally, he texts me back. He says, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm not so sure I want to follow Jesus. I'm like, oh, wow, that was a switch. Like, let's get together. And so eventually we do. We get together and we talk. And I said, what happened? And he said, well, I was, I was sharing Jesus with one of my friends. I'm like, good, good, yes, that's, what, that's great. And he's like, yeah, but when I told him that I was a Christian, uh, he, he basically said he couldn't believe that I would ever be a Christian, that I could ever believe the things that Christians believe. And he felt so ashamed by this person. And that's all it took. So far, at least. And he walked away. He, he really he took a second look at that stone, that foundation stone, and, he, and he, he felt ashamed of that foundation stone. Uh, sometimes it's an unwillingness to submit to the moral standards that come along with being a follower of Jesus. He, he gives us some standards they are for our good. They are life-giving, right? These are not things that are like harsh and uh, taking away our fun. These things are protecting us. But I, this happened multiple times where someone is coming into our church and they're excited about Christ, they profess faith in Christ, they get baptized, and then they meet a special someone. And that special someone is not interested in following Jesus. And then suddenly they're not in, interested in following Jesus. And part of that is because they don't want to submit that dating relationship to Christ's standards. <laughs> and so they're, they're out of there. They take a second look at that stone and they're like, nope, not building my life on that. There's relational costs just in general. Uh, we spent some time in, uh, in Turkey with some missionaries there, and one of the things that offhand comments that they made, they said, yeah, it takes seven years for someone to become a Christian from the first moment that they hear about Jesus. I was like, what? Seven years? Why? Well, because they'll essentially be excommunicated by their family. And so it takes that long, typically, to really get to a place where they're so persuaded regarding the gospel that they're willing to lose their family to follow Jesus. So there's some valid reasons (laughs) to not put your faith in, your trust in, your reliance upon Christ as your foundation stone. I think there's there's a little bit of confusion regarding this in the South among cultural Christians. Like some of you, may, you may be hearing some of these stories and you're like, what? Just do whatever you want and come to church. Mm-mm. That is not Christianity. That is a counterfeit. That is a counterfeit. 
And so what, what I've found with those that kind of come into the mix who are what we might call nominal Christians, right? They like to go to church, they like church activities, but they're not interested in submitting to Christ as Lord. It's, it's to, to press on that with grace, with truth, with love. And either what happens is they are activated in their faith and they go, yeah, you know what? You're right. I want to repent and trust in Christ. Or they're like, I'm out of here. If that's what Christianity is, I don't want it. Right? And I think that's better than this sort of limbo stage of, of being nominal and lukewarm and counterfeit. And it's, it's a problem <laughs> that I'm, I'm bumping up against quite a bit in good old Austin, Texas. Um, that I did not bump up against in Massachusetts that much because it, it just didn't score you any points to be a part of any, any kind of church activities in, in the Northeast. Now, that, that's, that's a pretty depressing, you know, 12 minutes or however long I went on and on about that. Um, but some people do believe. Some people do look at that stone and they say, I am going to rely upon, I am going to trust in. I'm, I'm going I'm to found my life on Christ, who He is, what He's done. And so Peter says, for those, the opposite of shame is what they should expect. They will expect something that's honorable, he says. That means it has worth, it has weight, it has value. It's an honor to rely upon, trust in Christ as your foundation. So what should I expect if, I, if I'm that person? If, if I'm that person that has seen the gospel, has trusted in, relied upon, put my life on it? Well, Peter has some really profound things to say about what to expect. So look what he says in verse 9. He says, you, so he's talking about those that have believed, those that have trusted in Christ. You are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There are so many profound terms in this couple of verses, right? He says, you're a chosen race. He's saying this thing that you're a part of, this communion of saints, is transracial. It's transcultural. Doesn't mean that race and culture don't matter. They do, but they are not the ultimate identity anymore. You now have an identity that supersedes that. You are of a chosen race, you are of a royal priesthood. So now he's not just talking about you being a priest. He's talking about you being a king, a priest king, a priest queen, meaning you have access to God as a priest, but you also have a domain that you're ruling and reigning on behalf of King Jesus. This is a great honor to have this kind of access and this kind of stewardship for Christ and His sake. You are God's people. Right? You belong to God. You are His possession. And then he says, you've received mercy. Like the only way we've ever been able to, to be given this special uh, sort, of, sort of identity is through the mercy of God. The compassionate withholding of wrath, which is what mercy is. 
And the reason he's able to do that is because he's placed his wrath on his son at the cross. And so we can receive mercy and become these chosen, precious children that belong to God. And we're offering sacrifices, right? We're offering our whole lives up to him. And here, the, the sacrifice that he mentions is the proclaiming of how excellent God is, right? That we're in this community of people who have seen the worth and weight of the gospel. We've planted our lives on it, and now we're proclaiming to each other and to those in the world, this is our excellent God. This is what he's done for us. This is who we are now because of the grace of the gospel. Does that sound amazing or what? This is what he's doing here. In our little band of, you know, a church start. We, I don't know, we're week 16 or something. I, I, we had, I, I, I quit counting, right? But it's not that many. The Lord is doing this. this, is, this is, he, is, he is building a spiritual temple. He's creating a, a spiritual priesthood of those who've planted their lives on Christ and are offering up their whole lives as a spiritual sacrifice. But this is not all you should expect. He goes on to describe more expectations. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, these two verses are like a punch in the gut. I mean, up to this point, it has been glorious. Would you agree? I mean, it's just, it's just glorious what God is doing in the creation of this spiritual church. But here, he says, okay, here's what you ought to expect in regards to your interaction with those who are not in the church, those who are in the world. And so he says, you are a sojourner. Our word might be a refugee. We are passing through. We have left a place, but we're not to our permanent home yet. And so we are in this limbo stage. But we're not home yet. We're just we're passing through. We're, we're a, a refugee. Um, we're in exile. If you're in exile, you, you were part of something. Now you're not part of something. You've been pushed out of it, right? And so you can think of it this way. You were part of the greater culture. You were resonating with the values and the, the goals of, of the greater culture. But now you've put your life and planted it on Christ, now you've been exiled out of a lot of those values, beliefs, and goals of the greater culture. Uh, there's a war going on. I don't know if you noticed that in, this, in these verses, but notice where the war is. It's in our own souls. So here we are. We're in this world that, that is affected by sin, but not only that, we're affected by sin. We have indwelling sin. We have, uh, some, the Bible calls this the flesh. And we're having to fight a war of the soul every day when we, when we wake up. Because there's temptations outside of us and there is sin in us. 
And that sin in us really wants to give in to that temptation that's outside of us. And it's a war going on every day. But then not only that, there's hostility from some that are outside of the church. He says they will speak against us as evildoers. Really? People will talk about Christians and say Christians are evil? They will, won't they? Now, in the first century, it looked a little different. In the first century, the church was getting in trouble for not worshiping the gods and goddesses in the Roman pantheon. And, And so they were supposed to be giving tribute to different gods and goddesses for different reasons. Even the emperor himself thought he was a god. Uh, if you were a, a tradesperson, you had to be a part of a trade guild to have access to the economic system. And that trade guild had a particular god or goddess that you worshipped. And you show up to the trade guild meeting, and the first thing's first. We're going to worship our god. We're going to worship our goddess. And so you as a Christian are like, no, I'm not doing that. You're like, well, you're outside the economic system. Sorry. You can't be a silversmith. You, you, you can't be uh, a construction worker. Sorry. You're out. Or um, the idea that if everyone doesn't pay tribute to these gods and goddesses, these gods and goddesses are going to get mad and they're going to make it hard for everyone in the community. And so Christians are seen as people who are not making the gods and goddesses happy. And so every problem that was cropping up, they said, well, those are the Christians. They're the problem. They're the reason why things are not going well. They're not venerating the gods. Now, for us, we, we don't have to worry about you know, the Roman pantheon. Um, But Christians today are spoken against as evildoers for a number of reasons. I mean, you know, our insistence that the Bible is like the book, it's the religious book that that gets it right, and every other religious book gets it wrong. People look at that and go, that's evil. That's evil. Uh, Our insistence that because of what this religious book tells us, that Jesus is like the only way that your sins can be forgiven and you can be reconciled to God. People look at that and go, that's evil. That's evil. Our stances on sexuality, gender, marriage, for many, look at that and go, that's evil. Our insistence that God doesn't love America more than all the other nations. People look at that and go, that's evil. If you're not an American exceptionalist, you're not a Christian. No. (laughs) That's seen as evil. And the church has always, in some ways, been out of step with the culture. So sometimes what we do is we go, oh, it's really bad now. We've got it so hard. No, the church always has it hard. There's always things that we don't, if the church is being true to Scripture, there's always things that we can't walk in step with the greater culture. And because of that, we are seen as evildoers in different ways. And so this is also part of the expectation of those that put their faith in, their reliance upon, their trust in the cornerstone, Christ, right? Is that there is going to be hostility. There's, there, you're going to be an exile. You're going to be a, a, a refugee. 
in this world. You're sometimes going to be looked at and you're going to say, you're an evildoer. And you say, well, why would God make his church go through that? Well, it says right here, right? You caught it. Verse 12, keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable. Now, he uses that word Gentiles here as just someone who is not one of God's people yet. Right? And so he says, keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. So what the church is doing is living out a faithful witness, even though they may be experiencing hostility and a war within their own souls and being treated as exiles, they're living a faithful witness in the midst of that difficulty. And what it's doing is causing others who are outside the church to see it and want to come in and put their lives on the cornerstone to trust in, rely on Christ. So those that are not yet God's people will then be able to say with us, we are God's people. And the only way that happens is through faith in Christ. So let let those expectations inform the way you think about your Christian life and life in the church. I think there's a reminder here One is just keep Christ central, right? We say we are centering on Christ. So that's definitely in this passage. And that the most spiritual thing you can do is center your life on Jesus. I've been in, in some conversations this week about some spiritual practices that people are 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 participating in and um psychedelic drugs and uh, different meditative techniques and going into other Eastern religions or even animistic religions and consulting shamans and, 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 and the, the desire is to be spiritual, to experience spiritual things. And what is true is that you want to be spiritual, you trust and rely on Jesus. That's the most spiritual thing you could do. In fact, you couldn't do that if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit working in you to give you faith. (laughs) So this is a good reminder of of keeping the main thing the main thing, of Christ as the cornerstone, as the center. And for some of you, this may be what you're doing right now. You're hearing me and you're thinking, I haven't done that yet. I want to trust in and rely on Jesus this morning. And I pray that you do, that you would put your trust in Him this morning, that you would cry out to him in in prayer and and confess your sins and put your trust and reliance on him. And then talk to somebody about it. Say, hey, that thing he's talking about, like, I'm ready. I'm ready to to, to plunge in. Uh, Or it may be you're like, I got a lot of questions. I don't know what he was talking about. I'm interested, but I have no idea what he just said. And begin to have that conversation about what it would mean to trust in Christ. It's also a reminder here of what it means to be church, to be a spiritual church. Because I think this is one of the reasons that people may be looking in other places for spiritual life because they don't realize that the church is a spiritual community. And it is. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in the believer and dwelling in the community of believers, the communion of saints. 
And so just be, being reminded of that. Uh, and, and that the second most spiritual thing you could do is join a local church. I, I know it doesn't sound maybe very spiritual, but this is where it's at. This is where the Holy Spirit dwells. Is in the heart of those who have placed their trust in Christ and are living in gospel-centered community with one another. That's where the Spirit is at work. That's where the quote-unquote temple is. That's where the priesthood is. That's where the sacrifices are being made. Just as in the Old Testament, if you wanted to get close to the manifested presence of God, you go to the temple. Well, if you want to get close to the manifest presence of God right now, you go to the church. You go to the church. You link your life with other brothers and sisters in Christ in a local church. And then thirdly, that we, we pray that God would do that. Pray that God would do that. We don't just assume that, that He's going to do these things, but we ask Him to do these things. And I was looking at uh, Ephesians 3 this week, this prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesian church, and I just, as I looked at it through the, the lens of the, the Holy Spirit being at work in the church, and I was like, wow, this is what Paul's praying for, right? Uh, Ephesians 3.14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So there's kind of the the universal church, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Right? He's praying for the local church of the church of Ephesus, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so this is, this is Paul praying for the church at Ephesus that Christ's power, His Spirit, would do a work in that communion of saints. So let's, let's pray that. Let's pray that for uh, our church. And then fourthly, let's set proper expectations around what it's like to live in this world. I've noticed, and I, as I've worked through this passage, that I was convicted of this, that I'm not surprised when, the, when church life is mediocre and devoid of spiritual power. I am surprised when the world is hostile toward me. I need to flip that. I need to be surprised when, I, when the church is mediocre and apathetic and devoid of spiritual power, and I go, what's going on? This is, not, this is not right. I need to get Ephesians 3 out and start praying Paul's prayer. God, this isn't right. We're the communion of the saints. We're a union of people and the power of the Spirit. What's going on here? And when experience opposition, I go, well, yeah, I mean, I'm an exile. I'm a sojourner. I was told in this, in this book, right, that, that, that people are going to sometimes call me an evildoer. Yep, check, check, check. Yep, right on schedule. But I, I tend to be the opposite. Oh, mediocre church? Eh, eh. No! Let's not expect that. And let's not be so surprised when we experience opposition. And part of how we encourage each other in the midst of being exiles and sojourners is we encourage each other with the gospel. This is what Peter is doing here, right? 
I mean, just, just think about his talk about the rejection of Jesus as the cornerstone. Why is he talking about that? Well, it's true. I mean, that's, that's one reason. But the other reason is that he is trying to encourage his brothers and sisters in the church because they're getting rejected. And he's saying, Jesus, if anybody knows what that's like, Jesus knows what that's like. He knows what it's like to be an exile, a refugee, a sojourner. He knows what it's like to be looked at as the divine son of God and be called an evildoer of all things. And not only that, but to be crucified by those in the world. All of us, right? And we are reminded of that every time we come to this table. We're reminded on the night on which Jesus is betrayed by one of his own. He takes bread. He blesses it. He breaks it. He gives it to his disciples. He says, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. New covenant? What are you talking about, Jesus? He's talking about the church. He, he, he's saying, because of what he's about to do at the cross, that what's going to happen is there's going to be a whole new community of God's people who are built on this gospel of him dying and rising and empowered by the Holy Spirit as a new priesthood where everyone has access to God. And so he says, this blood is the blood of a new covenant shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. And so if you are a follower of Christ this morning, if you have looked at that stone that many others, perhaps, you've seen reject, but you said, no, I'm going to rely on, I'm going to trust in, I'm going to believe in the foundation stone of Christ. I'm going to receive the honor that that is to be made right with God and to be made a chosen, precious son, daughter of God. If, you, if you've done that, I want to encourage you to come to the table, the king's table, who's chosen you, who loves you, who wants to remind you of the foundation of the church. This is one of the reasons that Jesus instituted this. Is so every week, we're like, bread and cup. What's that mean? Christ. This is what we're built on. This is what we're founded on. Right? And to come up and take the bread and to take the cup. And the, the way it works here is you'll come up, you'll take it, uh, take the, the bread from me, and then Ellen's going to help me with the, with the cup. And then you'll go back to your seat, and then you just have a time of prayer. And it's, it's just your time with God. And you can take it whenever you're ready. You don't have to wait for any kind of uh, indicator. If you're not yet a Christian, if you, we're really glad you're here. We're glad that you're seeking this out and figuring it out. And we encourage you during this time to, to pray, to remain in your seat, and then to reach out after the service and talk more about what this might mean for you going forward. So let me pray, and then uh, when you're ready, you can come forward. God, we give you thanks for the gospel, and for the community that's built by the gospel and the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and lives of individual Christians, but 
even more in the hearts and lives of individual Christians when they come together in communion as we celebrate this bread and cup. So God, would you do a spiritual thing and continue to do a spiritual thing in this room as we take this bread and take this cup and remember what you did to give us the foundation that we stand on today? Would you bless it and bless our time uh, as we commune with each other and with you? And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.